Our sermon text this afternoon is Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Jeremiah chapter 3, our text is especially verses 14 through 18. For the sake of context, I'll start the reading at verse 1. Before I read, let's pray once more for God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we desire that really we would hear you speak from heaven, that we might worshipfully, worshipfully uh, sit under your word and take heed unto it as God speaks and not as though it were man speaking. Father, we confess that we are weak and weary sinners, desperately in need of your grace, hard of heart and slow to understand. And so, O oh Father, illumine our hearts and soft and open our, our, our ears and our eyes and our hearts that we might receive the word with all readiness of mind. We pray that you would bring this word with power, that we might see Christ in it and have a hope, a hope for glory through him. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 3 from verse 1. They say... If a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he return again uh, unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places, and see where thou hast not been lying with. The, in, the ways, in the ways thou hast... Uh, sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast a, ford, a, a whore's forehead. Thou refusest to be ashamed. Wilt thou not from this time cry out to me, my father? Thou art the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I, and I said after she had done these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but also went, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass, through the lightness of her whoredom, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned again, uh, turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward 
the north, and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city, and two of a family, and will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass, when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, this morning, we came to a sad moment in Israel's history, a moment of declension that led ultimately to spiritual desertion, a moment where it was said, Ichabod, the glory is departed from Israel. And as a token of that moment, that sad moment, that desertion, the child that was born was called Ichabod. And as we considered that, we saw how it is our duty, really, to lament over the sad state of the church, even over and above our own personal afflictions. Well, as we looked at that moment in Israel's history, we might wonder where we might find the solution. We might find a restoration, a revival of God's people. Perhaps we could have turned to 2 Samuel uh, during the reign of King David when he went and he recovered uh, the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and say, aha, surely this is the revival that we're looking for. Surely this is the restoration that was sought after, the return of the Ark to the people of God, to Shiloh where it belongs. But I tell you no, friend, because even after the restoration of that physical Ark to the midst of God's people, even after the people of God enjoyed some spiritual prosperity even under, under the reign of David. We know from their history that not long thereafter, even under the reign of his son Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest king of all, they would turn again. They would turn away from the Lord. Beginning with Solomon himself, marrying many strange women. And in order to appease his wives, setting up Temples for their false gods. And this thing became a grievous sin and the occasion for much sorrow and the occasion for the great schism of the church of Israel. Up until this time, the 12 tribes had been one united kingdom. But because of Solomon's sin, because of his sin, the Lord brought judgment upon his house 
And whereas the, the kingdom ought to have remained with the sons of David unto every generation, the Lord, the Lord said that he would rend the kingdom from the house of David on account of Solomon's sin. And so in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, there was a great division in the church. The ten northern tribes separated themselves and became a separate kingdom, a separate kingdom under the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And this was intended by God to be a political separation, though not an ecclesiastical one. Although there was a separation in the kingdom, there was still to remain a unity in the church. But Jeroboam, for fear of losing his political power, did not allow, did not want uh, those under his kingdom to go down to Jerusalem, which was the appointed place for God's worship, and to worship there. And so he devised and invented false worship and appointed a man-made holy day in place of the biblical holy days that God himself had established. And he set up a golden calf in Dan and in Bethel and said, it's too much for you to go down to Jerusalem. Worship God through these golden calves. And this thing became a generational sin in every generation. Every king in, in the northern kingdom, every king in Israel is said to have walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And so from its very formation, the northern kingdom was marked by notorious idolatry. But as we see in our text, the southern kingdom was not much better. Although the kingdom of Judah had re retained the right form of worship for most of their history, save under the uh, reign of a few good kings, they also, they also perverted themselves with false worship and the worship of idols. One of the most notable kings in Judah's history was mentioned in our, in our reading, Josiah, King Josiah. King Josiah came on the scene after many generations of the law of God being forgotten, idolatry creeping in, false worship, the worship of false gods abounding throughout the land. But as Josiah became king, the book of the law was found and he read the book of the law and his heart was stirred. His heart was tender before the Lord as he came under the, con the conviction of sin and saw how the worship of God was being neglected. And Josiah led a great reformation and what seemed to be a, a great revival as well. And he led the people to, to make a new covenant, to make a covenant and to, and to uh, avow themselves to the Lord. And the people, they loved Josiah and they followed him and they agreed to, to, to partake in this covenant. Perhaps this was the revival that we're looking for. Perhaps this was the restoration, Josiah's reformation, where it said that the Passover was kept like it was never kept before or ever kept afterwards. Perhaps in the renewal of the covenant under King Josiah, that was the restoration. That was Ichabod's exodus. The glory perhaps under Josiah had returned to Israel. Sadly, however, we find in our text that that was not the case. That was not the case at all. 
In verse 6, Jeremiah speaks of what the Lord said to him in the days of Josiah. How, although Judah had seen backsliding Israel, yet they did not sincerely turn unto the Lord. But it says they turned unto him feignedly. Feignedly, verse 10. For all this, her treacherous sister Judah, although seeing how God dealt with the northern kingdom of Israel for all of her idolatry, Judah has not turned again unto the Lord with her whole heart, but feignedly. That's with hypocrisy. It was a pretense. This is the sad truth about that glorious reformation in Josiah's day, that the people by and large did it in pretense. Perhaps they were captivated by Josiah as a charismatic uh, political figure, but they didn't with their whole hearts turn unto the Lord. And so even that great renewing of the covenant where the people came together and made a covenant before the Lord, yet they didn't do it with their whole hearts. And, And so as we see throughout the Old Testament history, we can really find no true remedy, no true remedy for that declension and desertion we read of this morning. And so as we come down to our text, we look beyond, we look beyond the Old Testament age to the times of the gospel. Jeremiah is prophesying to a backsliding people. A people, though they had covenanted unto the Lord to be his people, renewed that covenant under Josiah, yet they turned back again and again and again. Like an unfaithful wife addicted to adultery. And no matter how many times the Lord would send his prophets to go and to reprove them, or even send his judgments to go and chasten them, they would just turn back again and again and again, showing that ultimately... Left to themselves, there's simply no remedy at all for the backsliding heart of man. And so, as we come down to our text, our text, although the Lord, although the Lord is rebuking his people, yet you see the tenderness in his words. In verse 1, he asks the question, if a man put away his wife... And she goes from him and becomes another man's. Shall he return again unto her? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? According to the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 24, once a man has divorced his wife and she's gone and and been married to another man, he can never take her back again. The Lord says that there's a, a certain kind of uncleanness in that. And yet, although that be the case with men, The Lord says to his treacherous wife that's gone and sold herself to many lovers, he says, return again to me, says the Lord. And as we'll see in our text, revival, true revival, true reformation, true restoration is all of grace and it's all of God's working. And so as we come down to our text, which is verses 14 through 18, What we see is an invitation or a call to repentance, first of all, where he says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. And this call, this invitation, is is confirmed 
by promises. He says, for I am married to you and I will take you one of a city and two of a family. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And in order to further confirm it, in verses 16 and 18, we have prophecies, prophecies of the fulfillment of these these promises. So we have, first of all, a call or an invitation to repent. Promises made and prophecies, prophecies of the success of those promises. Those will be our, our three points this afternoon. So first of all, let us look at this invitation or this call to repent. He says, turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. As we take up this text, we'll see that it's teaching us that in the gospel age, the Lord promises and the Lord will effect himself a prolonged time of revival. In the gospel age, the Lord promises and will affect himself a prolonged revival. It begins with his own invitation, turn, O backsliding children. The Lord is dealing with derelict children. Children that time and time again have been rebuked, have been corrected, have been taken aside and and, and disciplined, and yet For all these things, there's no lasting change in behavior. He's risen up judges and prophets to come and to lead his people, beginning with Samuel, all the way down to King Josiah, a great king, and the many prophets and judges in between. And yet for all this, for all this, there was no wholehearted lasting change. Repentance. You, you might think that finally and at last the Lord will cast off his people forever. They've, they've simply filled the cup of the iniquity. There's no, there's no more grace. There's no more mercy to be had. But in this call to repentance, we see the heart of our God. How he overflows with grace and mercy. And though his people, though we his people, are a people bent towards backsliding, a people who is self-destructive, who destroys ourselves with our sins, yet the Lord calls us back unto himself, though we be a wayward wife, though we be backsliding children. And he says, for I am married unto you. The Lord looks upon his people as his children. And so as a father, he pities them. And he has compassion towards them. Listen to what uh, we read in Jeremiah chapter 31 from verse 18. In Jeremiah 31 verse 18, the Lord says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me and I shall be turned for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, and confounded because I did bear the reproach of my youth. And listen to the Lord, how he describes Ephraim now. He says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? 
For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Here we see that even though his people are backsliding, even though they've done abominations, and if you, see, you study the history of Israel, they really did some heinous things in the sight of the Lord. Take, for example, King Manasseh, a son of David, who not only worshipped false gods, but offered the Lord's children that God gave him, he offered them, he burned them in the fire to false gods. There was ritual sodomy going on outside of the temple of the Lord. You see, in those days, and in this day, part of their false, the, the false worship to, God, to the false gods involved ritual acts of perversion as part of their worship. And that was going on in the Holy Land, just outside of the temple. And yet... These things that happened even under the reign of King Manasseh. Yet the Lord did not utterly cut off his people. Even King Manasseh himself turned to the Lord and knew that the Lord was God. And so the Lord, although his people had done such heinous and wicked things in his sight, he still looks upon them as his children and calls them, calls them to turn back. And this call is grounded upon promises. So we come to the promises. He says, for I am married unto you and I will take you one of a city and two of a family. He says, I'm married unto you. He, he describes the covenant of grace as a marriage and he is a faithful husband. Although we might be faithless, he remains ever faithful for he cannot deny himself. He says, I have entered into a covenant with you. The covenant that he made and established with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. He knew all of these things when he made that covenant. And in his faithfulness, in his faithfulness, he called a people unto himself. He called a rebellious and stiff-necked generation unto himself, knowing that they would go astray, knowing that they would be backsliding children in order to display his abundant grace, in order to teach them that it's not because there's, there's any worthiness in them at all, not because of their righteousness, for they had none, not because of their faithfulness of the covenant, but only because of his grace and his promises and his faithfulness to his own covenant do they have access unto him as the, his people and he as their God. And he invites them with a gracious promise. Now at this point with a wayward child, he would be just to say, turn to me because I'm a wrathful judge. And I'm going to bring judgment upon your heads. He'd be right to say that. But he beckons unto them, not with bitter waters, but with sweet honey. And he says, I'm married unto you. I will not forsake you. I'm joined to you. He says, you are my people and I am your God. And I've made with you a covenant that cannot be broken. I have loved you with an everlasting love that cannot cease. 
He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that's really quite striking, friend, when we think about it. The love of God is everlasting. Not just that it's without beginning or without ending. It's also even without beginning. For his love is as eternal as himself. And because his love is eternal, it merely flows from his good pleasure. That is, if you will, in a sense, his arbitrary will. His will whereby he simply chose to set his love upon his people, not grounded upon anything in them at all, but simply because he decided to, he decided to set his love upon them and therefore he loves them. This is far different than human love. Whereas in human love, oftentimes it's the object of our affection that has something in them. There's some beauty, there's some skill, there's some something in them, something good that draws us almost involuntarily to be affected towards them. Not the case with God at all, for there's nothing good in us. He was not compelled by anything in us, no beauty, no righteousness, no goodness. He simply freely bestowed his love upon us. And as the ultimate demonstration of that love, he sent his son to redeem us. If you ask the question, well, why does God love me? Maybe we might think, well, it's because of Jesus. Jesus died for my sins, therefore God loves me. Wrong. The Bible says the exact opposite. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the cause and effect in that, in that famous verse. For God so loved the world, he loved the world, therefore he sent his son. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. Rather, Jesus died for you because God already loved his elect from eternity. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Such is the love of God towards his people. And this really, this really is a ground for assurance, isn't it? One singer Ask the question, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? A, a valid question in human relations, in fact. What, what happens when the, the young, beautiful woman, woman grows old and is no longer beautiful? Oftentimes we see in the world that she's divorced and her husband goes and finds some young thing instead. That can happen in, the human, in human relations. Not so with God. Because his love is not predicated upon anything in us. Therefore, there's nothing in us that can, that can cause that love to cease either. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, even our own sins. And so God, having set his love upon his children, though they be backsliding children, he proclaims, I am married unto you. And although their sins would bring chastening, although in just a few years from this prophecy, they would all be taken captive to Babylon. He says, I will, take, I will take you one of a city and two of a family and bring you to Zion. That he will bring restoration even from his own chastening hands. And he promises and he says, and I will give you pastors 
according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and with understanding. As a mark of restoration, of revival, of God's love, of his unbreakable covenant of grace, he promises to send pastors to feed his people, pastors that are according to his heart, that are going to feed his people with knowledge and with understanding, not like the, the, the sons of Eli that were, that were grievous wolves, that ate up the substance of the people and fornicated with the wisdom having, with the women, having eyes full of adultery and could not cease from sin. No, he's going to send godly pastors that are according to God's heart that will feed with knowledge and understanding. This is, in fact, a gift from the Lord, a mark of his kindness, a mark of his love, that he sends pastors to feed his people with knowledge and with understanding. We read in Ephesians 4 that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to men. And those gifts are the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers that indeed, as this prophecy has said, come and to, to feed us with knowledge and with understanding. And we read of the exhortations of the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5 unto pastors to, to feed God's flock with, with the word. And, Acts, and Paul in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders says the same thing. Feed the flock of God over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. This is all a mark of God's love towards his people. But note, note that this is looking ahead. This is looking ahead to the gospel age. This is a prophecy of the days of Jesus Christ. We see this as we look in verse at verse 16. He says, And it shall come to pass when ye be we when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it. This is a striking prophecy, especially in light of the text that we read this morning. This woman died. Eli died because of the grief of hearing that the Ark of the Covenant was no more. They were so attached to the Ark as the Old Testament sign and seal of God's, of God's presence with them that it was enough to strike the godly with enough grief to cause them to die. And here we read of an age when we will no God's people will no longer look to the Ark. This is, of course looking to an age where that Old Testament administration, full of types and ceremonies, of which the Ark of the Covenant was one, when all those things have come to an end, and the substance with those, which those shadows set forth has come. In other words, it looks towards the day of Jesus Christ come down from heaven, assuming to himself a human nature, and offering himself as the great and final high priest. And being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, bringing all of those former ceremonies, including the ark, to an end. And no longer would they look to the ark as a token of God's presence, 
but rather God would really come and dwell in the midst of them. As we read in Zechariah 2, where he says, he will come and dwell in our midst. We read that fulfilled uh, in the Gospels, when it says that Jesus has come and dwelt among us. And at that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. So as we see in these prophecies then, it pertains to the days of the gospel, after the coming of Christ. After the coming of Christ, when the Ark of the Covenant is forgotten, and and there's a a presence of the Lord that's not pertaining to any uh, one location. The worship of God is not confined to one carnal and physical Jerusalem, but now we speak of the heavenly Jerusalem to which in the gospel the nations come to. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, that we've come to that heavenly Jerusalem. We're not speaking at this point of an earthly Jerusalem. As Galatians 4 also teaches us. And so at this time, at this time when the Ark of the Covenant is forgotten and God's presence is really dwelling in a spiritual way in his people, the true Jerusalem, And they're called the throne of the Lord. And so the nation shall come, come and join themselves, be gathered unto the people of the Lord. And they shall no longer walk after the imagination of their evil heart. And in those days, in these gospel days, he says that the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north, the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. We look ahead. We look ahead to a time when that schism between the northern and southern kingdoms is at length remedied. And there's a union, a union of a divided church, church, a church that was broken up into two denominations. But the Lord says at this time, at this time when I bring a true reformation, a true revival, a true outpouring of the Spirit, there will be unity and they will come together. The same things are said and is said in effect in Jeremiah chapter 50 where we read, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces, they're the word saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. These prophecies pertain to things to happen in the gospel age, part, partly already fulfilled in that the, the Ark of the Covenant is no longer mentioned now that the true Ark, Jesus Christ, has come. But we do look. We do look for the calling of the Jews. That they're turning again unto the Lord. Second Corinthians 3. And the fullness of the Gentiles coming in 
so that the, so that the Jews are provoked again to jealousy, and they too come in. Romans 11. All these things, all these things we wait for in our age, and we're assured by these and other promises that it will surely come to pass. The prophet Zechariah, in his prophecy, chapter 2, says that in those days, at that time, shall many nations be joined to the Lord. Many nations joined to the Lord. The same thing is said in effect in our text, that the nations shall, come, shall be gathered unto it. In Isaiah 2, we read how the nations are going to come, come to the house of the Lord and affirm with the same cup, with the same words that Israel used in Exodus 19. When God freely offered to be their God and they assented to the terms of his covenant and they said all that the Lord has said we will do, they, they said that at that earthly mountain, in Isaiah 2 we read of a spiritual mountain when the Gentiles are coming and saying we will walk in the ways of the Lord. The scriptures hold out a time, a time in the gospel age when the nations in mass will turn unto the Lord. And not, not only for a generation or two or three. Indeed, at points in history, we've seen, we've seen foretastes of it. When the Lord called his people out from the Roman Antichrist in the times of the Reformation. And even at that time, Many, many nations turned unto Christ. But we see now that in this day, that was not a lasting reformation. For all of those nations have since fallen away. And so we look for a day. We look for a day when the Lord so brightly shines forth the light of his gospel. Redounding through the church to every, to every corner of, the, of this earth. And that, that great commission, which the Lord has sent forth, where he has sent forth his, his gospel ministers and his church to go forth and to disciple all nations, which corresponds exactly to this and other pro pro prophecies, which speak of the nations coming into the Lord, which speak of the nations as Christ's inheritance. We look for a day when the nations that rebel against Christ become his inheritance. I, I, friend, I trust that you're familiar with Psalm 2, how it speaks of the nations rebelling against God and of, and of his Christ. But have you ever considered how the mercy of Christ is set forth in Psalm 2? Psalm 2 says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. They rebel against the Lord. And yet, these same nations that rebel against Christ, Christ has them for his inheritance. The Father says to the Son, ask of me and I shall give thee the, the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thine possession. This really is a work of the gracious gospel that the enemies of the Lord, 
become Christ's inheritance. And isn't that each and every one of our testimonies if we believe on, on Christ today? That we who are children of wrath, by nature averse to every good thing and rebellious against God, that God broke through the hardness of our hearts, converted us unto himself, translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, took out our heart of flesh and uh, took out of our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh so that now we who are enemies are now made joint heirs with Christ. And this work is an ongoing work. The Lord Jesus described it as beginning as a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But in time, and through church history, that mustard seed grows, and it grows, and it grows until it becomes the greatest of all trees. The prophet Daniel describes the kingdom of Christ as being a stone cut without hands, just a stone. But it grows to fill the whole earth. All these things in congruence with our text speak of the kingdom of Christ subduing the nations until the nations come into it and they join themselves into the Lord and they really become his inheritance and the great commission that Jesus Christ has commissioned his church to do is really and literally fulfilled when the nations turn unto Christ in mass. The prophet Isaiah looking ahead to these days. Looking ahead to these days, he says in his prophecy, chapter 60, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to the light, and kings the brightness of thy rising. He goes on to say, for the nation and the kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. I could multiply this and other prophecies throughout the scriptures that speak of this gospel, of this time in the gospel age when the nations come unto Christ. This, this is the true remedy. The true remedy to that lamentation of Ichabod. When the Lord, the Lord seeing the frailty and the inconstancy of his people in their flesh, pours out his spirit in a special way so that they continue in him and the nations come unto him and that for a great while. This is exactly really what the book of Revelation speaks of when it speaks of Satan being bound and cast into a bottomless pit so that he might deceive the nations no longer. And that continuing for a thousand years, not a literal thousand years, but symbolizing a very long period of time. That in congruence with all these other prophecies teaches us that we look for a day, we look for a time of revival that's wrought not by the artifice of man, not by the concoctions of our imaginations, but through the Spirit of God and His working, drawing His people unto Himself, converting the nations, 
and causing them to continue to walk in his ways and not, not after the imagination of their evil heart. And we look for a time of a church, a church once schismed, a church once divided into various denominations, now under the gospel. And, and, and in the time of this outpouring of God's spirit, the breaches remedied, the schisms repaired, and coming together, joining themselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. We look for that day, and we work towards that day. In the RPCNA covenant of 1871, we have avowed ourselves, seeing that denominations and schisms are in and of themselves sinful, to labor towards the unity of the church, the unity of the visible church, believing that God will, in fact, bring that unity one day. This and other prophecies is the ground of that belief. This and other prophecies is the ground that incites us to action, to actually labor towards that gospel unity of the church. This, this is the time the Lord's own working, his own gracious working, his own gracious reviving of his people is that time when Ichabod is at last cast out and Emmanuel, God with us, takes his throne, takes his throne and sits as king in his church and over all the earth. And so although as we heard this morning, we do lament for the sad state of the church at present. We also have hope. We have hope that that which we pray for, that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth, will really be fulfilled in his time. And insofar as the church continues to grow and to expand upon the earth, his kingdom is advancing. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And his will is being done as Jesus Christ reigns over our hearts, directing us to walk in his ways. But we desire to see an expansion of that kingdom. We desire to see this city and this state and this nation kiss the sun, lest they perish in the way. We desire to see this nation and all nations join themselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. We desire, as we sung earlier in Psalm 80, that the Lord would turn us, turn us unto himself, that we might be saved. And this really is the reason why we pray those petitions, those early petitions in the Lord's Prayer, that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. Because unless he does it, unless he affects it, it won't happen. Godly King Josiah can lead the people in a covenant re re renovation. John Calvin can write his institutes. John Knox can teach the people of covenanting. England and Scotland can come together in a covenant. But if the Lord does not sustain the work, it will not last. And so that's what we look for. 
and we have assurances, we have promises and prophecies that confirm to us that in fact it will happen. And so we do not lament unto despair, but we lament with hope, trusting that the Lord will do the work, call the people unto himself, restore and revive and reform his church, and also cause all nations to come flowing into it. So that as the prophets saw so many decades ago, so many eons ago, that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we desire to see. And that's what will happen. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. And so we trust. We trust that though we might lament today over Ichabod's advent, saying that the glory is departed from Israel. Yet, with the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ in earth, there has been, in a definitive sense, Emmanuel, God with us. And there will come, in a preeminent sense, Emmanuel, God over all the earth. And all nations will flow into Christ's kingdom. And so we, looking for that day, longing, longing for the will of the Lord to be done, for the kingdom of Christ to advance, assured that this is a work all of grace and all of God's working, we continue steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so we can be comforted, seeing God's grace in this text, how he's married unto us, though we be backsliders. But also we wait, and we look unto him for true revival of the soul and of the church and the advancing of his kingdom, which ought to be our great delight. And so, with patience, with patience as we meditate upon this text. We trust in the God that turns sinners unto himself, that as he himself has said, he will turn the nations, turn the nations and cause them to kiss the sun, lest they perish in the way. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us such precious promises that though we lament, we do not lament unto despair, but trusting and hoping in your words, we look, we look for the adorning of your church and the kingdom of your son with holiness and, and the day when you indeed cause the nations to flow in and to submit themselves to King Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd write these things upon our hearts, that we ourselves would recognize how we are backsliding children and need to come under the sway of your holy scepter to subdue our iniquities and to cast them into the depths of the sea. So work in us, turning us into yourself. And we pray, O oh God, that you would indeed establish us as subjects, subjects of the kingdom of your Son, that in word and in deed we might live as servants of Christ, in whose name